Hello and welcome back to NEEMT Radio. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence. We're at the end of the year, 2023. Uh, we're about to welcome in 2024, but we can't do that until I've had my final two guests of the year on, and they are President-elect Chris Way. Welcome, sir. Well, welcome back, sir. How are you? Uh, Rob, thank you for having me, and I'm great. I uh, look forward to this uh, regularly and always enjoy the opportunity. And, of course, returning guest, Brian Stennett from uh, Palatine Fire. Brian, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Good. So, uh, season's greetings, uh, whatever your season may be, uh, please uh, t- accept my greetings. We're going to talk about a really important subject to end 2023 on, and the official title is the financial benefits of engaging with your local regional healthcare coalition. That's quite a grand title, but it's a really, really essential task for all like you out there to get into cahoots, to liaise, to work with those regional healthcare organisations that are surrounding you. So I'm going to start with you, Brian. So set us up by describing what regional healthcare coalitions are, and actually tell us how you, in your capacity, your official capacity outside of NAMT, make that work for you. Well, regional healthcare coalitions are a coordination of organizations in 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 a regional geographic area, hospitals, health departments, EMS agencies, and any other support agency that's going to provide assistance or care to patients or the public in any type of incident. And it's really a way to coordinate efforts and share resources and uh, supplies, uh, things like that, in order to make sure your efforts are streamlined so that we're not all doing redundant work. As a paramedic firefighter, my first introduction to healthcare coalitions was back in 2018 or so. We'd been having a lot of active shooter incidents throughout the country. And as the rescue task force idea was being developed for responding to active shooter assailant events. The healthcare coalition used funding to purchase mass violence bags and provide them to all of the EMS agencies and the 14 hospitals in the region where I'm located. And that provided each responding vehicle for police and fire department to have extra tourniquets bleeding control, uh, bandages, uh, chest seals, things like that. And that was a part of that HPP grant funding. So the HPP grant is the healthcare preparedness grant through ASPR that provides funding to these coalitions in order to improve our response and readiness capabilities. While working on my master's degree in public health, I ended up doing an internship with King County Health Department under their emergency response coordinator. And I got to sit on the RHCC meetings from there and see kind of the inner workings. And when I took my position as emergency manager at Northwest Community Hospital, and now I became uh, part of that executive council and really got to be involved in how those grant funds are spent, um, how it's used to support exercises, to test our capacity to manage large-scale incidents. And we try to get all of our EMS agencies, fire departments, police departments in the area to be involved in those exercises and really make sure that we're all working on the same page. And so I've already started my checklist. Uh, Last episode of NAMT Radio, we had a great discussion. I ended up presenting a checklist uh, for all of our listeners and readers. So you've already covered liaison training and funding. So there's some really good reasons to be involved in these coalitions. Uh, Chris, obviously, it's something that uh, everyone should be involved with, and they should go out and get involved with their local group and their local groupings, right? 
Oh yeah, absolutely, Rob. I mean, I think um, I think Brian brings up some great points, but I also think the more involved we are, is the more people understand what we do. And I would tell you, even from a local local aspect here, there are a lot of people involved in our local healthcare coalition that have no idea what the capabilities of EMS are or, or were. Um, but then when it was go time, and obviously our big event that we had to shine was COVID, but uh, I, I liken EMS to becoming the Swiss army knife of COVID. Uh, we had all the tools in the toolbox to do something. You know, and and that came a lot through the local healthcare coalition. When when we needed when somebody needed a, a vaccination clinic, they said, "Who do we call?" And the, well, we're going to call EMS. Uh, well, we need to set up a field hospital. Who do we call? Well, I don't know. Why don't we call? Why don't we call the fire department? And those are just a couple of examples. But really, EMS's role in COVID became more clear as the days went on. But part of the part of that, at least on our local level, happened because of the relationships that we'd formed with those people long before we had a pandemic. It was done because we had a local healthcare coalition. We were sitting at the table uh, with the doctors and the nurses and the local health district and the the various specialty hospitals we have, and and that also gives us a better understanding of what their capabilities are, just even maybe on a regular basis. I think you've uh, raised a couple of points there. It, it's always that uh, lesson in emergency preparedness, of course, that you shouldn't be exchanging your business card at the point of the emergency or the point of the disaster. And therefore, having these relationships beforehand is key. You mentioned the fact that we are this, we were and we are the Swiss Army knife of all kind of public safety, public health emergencies, etc. Um, I like to say I think we are the, the last great health and social care safety net as well. So let's get all those uh, sayings together. But of course, it, I think during COVID, you're quite right that there was a case where we rolled out all of these competencies and these abilities and these things we could do. Just, oh, yes, we can, you know, out in California, we were running track and trace clinics early on where we were trying to just track people down and isolate them. Then it moved on to, to vaccination clinics, as you say, field hospitals. The, one of the first things we did in California was actually evacuation from the cruise ships when they were they they arrived and we had to move them. So we could, we could turn our hand absolutely everything and those people listening and you guys uh, on the on the podcast know we can do that but obviously these are capabilities that some folk perhaps express surprise that i went oh really you can do that i didn't know that and there's and they should have known that beforehand right oh yeah i i think um again though um i call it the ice cream social effect you you it, you can't wait to you shouldn't wait till the tornado passes through to all get together you know the the hospital ceo and the fire chief and the police chief and the ems chief and the county commissioners and all those people ought to get to get together in a room long before the big one happens i don't care what the big one is and meet and so uh when you do that though then you do have an opportunity to explain some of your capabilities and you know, it's interesting, uh, locally, we had an opportunity to do a new resource book. And what we said is, we got to cut that down. I don't need to know your resources. I need to know who the people are, because if I know the people, then I can figure out your resources change on a daily basis. This, this is the discussion of an MCI. I don't know how many patients I can handle, because is it Tuesday at four o'clock in the morning, or is it Friday afternoon at two o'clock in the afternoon? My resources are very different. My capabilities are very different. The hospital's resources and capabilities are very different. And that's no different as we change. And so you can't tell me a three-inch thick 
resource book gets updated as it should. My most important tool I have is my cell phone with those contacts from the healthcare coalition in it to say when I need to find three ventilators or I need to find you know, ICU beds, or I need to find another EMS agency that can come help me transport critically ill patients or whatever the capability is during the emergency. I just need to know who they are and know, know a little bit about them so that they understand what those capabilities are. Wonderful. I, I do think one part of that book that does need to remain quite thick is the when, and, and I've done this professionally, when you have to evacuate a hospital, sometimes the emergency planners on the hospital side will just go and then we'll evacuate the hospital and we'll go to where, with how many vehicles, how far away are we taking them to, who's who has who has the 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 the, the rights to look after the patient when they get to the other end and so that's one of the things that for which I was very grateful to have those liaisons those discussions and being a part of actually a healthcare uh, cooperative in order to have discussions like that because things like that don't just happen they have to be worked through exercised trained for and planned it's funny you say that because I would argue that in in several disasters I've been a part of, the hospitals have treated it just like they treat every other Tuesday. And when they when they need to move a patient, they just call your dispatch center and say it's time to move a patient. And moving one patient isn't a problem. Moving two hundred patients, as you know, is is a little little bit more of a challenge. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. Having those discussions ahead of time. You know, one of the things that we deal with here in Idaho is wildfires. And we've had to evacuate some some long-term care facilities in a hospital in the past because of wildfires. And uh, it's well, that's not something that you just, you don't turn on a dime on that deal. You don't. And obviously a lot of preparation and my experience, and I have to say, I'm, I'm not hospital bashing. I, I will for just one second that, you know, when, when they say, and we'll have the 50 patients on the curb at a nine o'clock, well, I don't have 50 ambulances because emergencies are still going on. And therefore, that level of planning and coordination, it, it's C3, command, control, communication is is key. All the reason for getting into these these coalitions. Um, so I have to tell everybody that the Office of Healthcare Readiness uh, from ASPA is looking to enhance healthcare readiness, specifically in EMS, through a number of programs and initiatives uh, that they're running. Uh, obviously, the Hospital Preparedness Program Cooperative Agreement, which they're working on, um, Disaster Health Response System Cooperative Agreements, uh, uh, National Special Pathogen Systems, and we'll come back to that with you in a second, Brian, because I know you've been involved sort of on the periphery of that, and obviously workforce capacity and capability, and I know that's a subject dear to your hearts. So a number of things we need to be involved with, but special pathogens, obviously we've just gone through COVID. It's something we probably never thought about before. You're involved in or have been involved in some of that, Brian. What does what does that actually mean to us? Just like COVID was an emerging pathogen, uh, we still have recurrences of Ebola and other viral hemorrhagic fevers that are high consequence infectious diseases, and it's not routine care like we have every day on the street in EMS, where you just have on your gloves and maybe some goggles and you get on your way. There's a lot more PPE and. The safety of your staff really depends on their competency with that PPE and their ability to transfer care at the facilities. So the National Special Pathogen System really hinges on having different level hospitals that are trained at different capacities to receive and manage those patients and whether or not they can treat them in the long term. So if somebody presents to a frontline facility that's able to identify uh, isolate and notify that there is a high consequence pathogen, 
they're not necessarily equipped to hold that patient in the long term and manage them. So they're going to identify that this is a potential case and they're going to work to transport that patient to an assessment center or a treatment center. And there are only 13 treatment centers throughout the country now. They just added three. So that's up from 10. And those 13 hospitals are really tasked with making sure that within their FEMA regions that they have processes and protocols in place to be able to get patients to those treatment centers. I was involved in the steering committee with NETEC to look at that care delivery system and really give some insight into how EMS is involved in that. And the real big challenge is the geography of it. You know, it's when you're talking about putting on maximum barrier PPE, possibly wearing a PAPR that's battery operated and then getting in the back of the ambulance with somebody that has one of these pathogens, you can't take a 12-hour ambulance ride across country like that without having to stop for a bathroom break, without having to stop to fuel up your ambulance. And are you going to pull up at the local fueling station with an Ebola patient in the back of your ambulance to stop for fuel? So do you have to set up a system where maybe they have to go from a frontline facility to another frontline facility and from there to an assessment center and from there to a treatment center? Or how is that cascade going to look? How are the staff at the receiving facility trained to take that patient from your EMS crew that's making that transport? So there's been a lot of work put into all of these details to make sure that the training and processes are in place to make sure that staff are safe. When we look at back in uh, Dallas Presbyterian in Texas, where we had two nurses that contracted Ebola from the patient there, it was in the dying and doffing process where that contamination occurred. So there's the more times that we're making those exchanges, the more risk there is to our staff. And that similar type of setup with this national special pathogen system is very similar to our regional healthcare coalition, where you're taking all of these different agencies and making sure that we're all in the same playing field and having the same training and education and policies in place so that we close the gaps for error. Excellent. And you mentioned NETEC. Uh, I should say that uh, for those that aren't familiar with that, NETEC is actually the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Um, they have a website, NETEC.org. We'll put it in the show notes. And they have an amazing range of, of briefings, of webinars, of classes that we can all look at and take. And I think we should all be involved in that. And uh, you're quite right. And there's a lot, a lot of lessons to be learned. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Peter Simpson, British paramedic, I'm going to name him, was in uh, Western Africa during the Ebola crisis. And he arrived with a box load of duct tape. Why? Because he wanted to actually tape his all of his PPE in. And the first thing they took off him, believe it or not, was the duct tape, because it's all well and good taping yourself in. But as you remove the tape, it rips the suit and therefore exposes you. And so uh, don't think you've got the solution. You go to the experts, they'll tell you what to do. So Tech are one of those experts. And also shout out, I think, to uh, Dr. Alex Isakoff, who's uh, one of the national leaders in Tech and also medical director at Grady. Um, and so uh, shout out to him. But before we go any further, let's just stop and listen to this message. Over three decades ago, PHTLS, Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support, transformed the assessment and management of trauma patients in the field, improving quality of trauma patient care and saving lives around the world. The 10th edition of this trusted, comprehensive resource 
continues the PHTLS mission to promote excellence in trauma patient management by all pre-hospital care practitioners through global education. In the field, seconds count. The 10th edition of PHTLS Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support teaches and reinforces the principles of rapidly assessing a trauma patient using an orderly approach, immediately treating life-threatening problems as they are identified and minimizing delays in initiating transport to an appropriate destination. To order your copy today, visit psglearning.com or follow the link in the show notes. And we're back. Yeah, you're listening to uh, episode 22 of NAEMT Radio. And uh, don't forget, whatever platform you're listening to us on, just uh, hit that like and subscribe button. What it means is that, A, we go up the searchability. And every time an episode drops, you get notified. And so you can listen in to the next edition of NAEMT Radio. Our guests today are president-elect of NAMT, Chris Way, and Brian Stennett. And we're talking about regional healthcare coalitions. So, Chris, how can we get involved in these things? I think you got to search out. So, you know, um, everybody has a healthcare coalition. Whether you know you do or don't, I can promise you, you do. Uh, in less populated states, they're they're often vast and big. Um, in in more populated states, I mean, they can have lots and lots and lots of of healthcare coalitions. The, the biggest piece is, is to identify where your local healthcare coalition is. And if you're a local EMS agency and you don't know who your local healthcare coalition is, I would start at either your public health agency, you can talk to the state, uh, your, your state health and welfare office, whatever that, your state EMS office, whatever that looks like. Uh, talk to your local hospital, but but that's the mechanism to get involved. And they're actually required to have EMS as part of their local healthcare coalition. So I, I am confident that they would welcome you in with open arms to their healthcare coalition. But but you can find that out. Um, and then, you know, uh, I think the good or bad, I think we all like being in person. But one of the benefits that has come out of the pandemic is we really did figure out how to do virtual everything. And so I can speak for our area. We do most of our meetings virtually and then have a couple of in-person meetings and and try to do a, a lot of the business as we can with, without having to do that. But uh, or without having to have everybody drive, especially in a big area, but getting getting in and finding that accessibility, and then again making yourself available to the healthcare coalition is key. Um, and I can tell you from a local standpoint, uh, or, or from a selfish standpoint, we have benefited from being at the healthcare coalition and other EMS agencies. Not when they need to spend money, and they say, "Hey, who's got a project?" and we're sitting there with a project to do, and there's no one else from from a pre hospital. Uh, uh, transport environment, we're the we're the person that they all turn to and say, "Hey, how can we give you some money to do what you want to do?" And it's really been a great benefit to our organization. Indeed, and of course, you can also then take, and you should be doing this anyway, right? But taking part in exercises and uh, and such like, uh, whether it's tabletop, whether it's virtual, whether it's just sort of map planning, or whether it's the, the one where you get the Boy Scouts in and moulage them up and, and, and use them. And uh, that's certainly something I think that uh, you've been active in, Brian. Yes, I actually just had a coalition exercise this morning part of this podcast. We did a region-wide chemical incident tabletop exercise that involved a train crash scenario with organophosphates and we had our EMS partners at all 14 of our regional hospitals 
involved in that conversation along with our emergency management agencies, our local health departments, and our law enforcement partners to look at how we would respond to an organophosphate incident, uh, how we would activate our ChemPAC assets and transport them to the scene of an incident, how EMS would use those assets, how we would set up chemical decontamination both at the scene and at the hospital level, and how those different tasks would integrate with each other from a communication standpoint, having a joint information center as part of our emergency operations centers and just streamlining that communication. So the coalition has really given an opportunity for us to operate outside of our own silos. I think in healthcare, public health, EMS, fire service, law enforcement, we all have a tendency to operate within our own silo. And that might mean within EMS as a whole, not working well with other portions of healthcare or even within our own agencies and not working well with other agencies. It's really important to partner and move outside of that in order to see what everybody else has. I think Chris brought up during COVID that there was a lot of things highlighted. Our healthcare coalition actually has a warehouse with supplies to their stockpile outside of what you would get from the strategic national stockpile. And our healthcare coalition played a, a very strong role in making sure that some of our hospitals in EMS providers had the proper PPE because we had stockpiles of N95s and gowns and things like that, that if you're not aware that your healthcare coalition exists or you're not partnered with them, you may not have access to those supplies or the funding to get more supplies rather than every agency trying to order through SNS themselves, we can have the healthcare coalition place an order and help distribute it more humanly. You make an excellent point there. I think we're all fairly well versed in all hazards incident management, right? We know what our ICS, we're used to working, I think, with our police, fire, EMS partners, but obviously the the healthcare coalition then gives us the, the, the medical and clinical depth, let's call it that, because of course we are really good at the first response bit. But of course, that could be the first hour or the first day of any incident. But of course, healthcare and healthcare partners have to manage, you know, from day one to week, however many or month, however many. And obviously, then we're part of that too. And so, make the, the, those are excellent points. And I, and I think understanding your your risks are good. I remember that uh, certainly when I was the COO in Richmond, we had a train of back and crude running through every other day, back and crude oil heading down to refineries. And at one point, it's just like, oh, there's a really long train going through with tankers on. We wonder what's in it. And then all of a sudden, oh, actually, that's more flammable than your regular crude. So now we need to start thinking about that. And so whilst individual pockets of organizations knew what was going on, the collective of both the All Hazard Incident Management team and, of course, the Healthcare Coalition came together to work out, well, so what? What do we need to do next? How do we do? How do we address these things? And so that's absolutely, absolutely key. Uh, Rob, I think one. Of, I think Brian made a great point. You know, he exercised this morning. I think one of the things that we found um, in our own area, specific to exercise, was it was really tough. Sometimes we wouldn't be invited to the exercise, but they would assume they thought they knew what EMS would do in an exercise, and so they'd simulate. You know, like you said earlier. Oh well, they're just going to show up with fifty ambulances. Well, as it turns out, we might be. You know. 35 ambulances short of that project or, you know, whatever it is. So um, I feel like introducing those relationships put us at the, put it, gave us a seat at the table, but there were a lot of other advantages too. I, again, 
Uh, one of the things on a local hospital level that it did for us was build some relationships to allow us to start a new critical care transport program. It had nothing to do with the healthcare coalition, but the relationships that were developed in the healthcare coalition allowed the hospital to come to us with a problem and allowed us to work with the people that we had established relationships with to develop a solution to the problem. Um, I think, you know, the trainings that they offer, the healthcare coalitions have training money that is specific to training and they can bring speakers in and they can do things. Uh, one of the, one of the goals of our healthcare coalition became uh, truly uh, expanding the risks or expanding the knowledge of hands-only CPR in our region. Well, great. You know what they, they realized though, they're not the people to go teach it all the time, but they gave us the training tools and supplied the money and, and got us some resources that we wouldn't have been able to have. And we've been able to train thousands of people as a result of that. And that was just a partnership that came out of a, you know, I think over a subway sandwich at a, at a coalition meeting, it wasn't because it was a planned event. It was because four or five people got together and said, Hey, this is a problem that we're facing it, but we don't have the, and we had the idea of how to train them, but we didn't have the resources to be able to allocate to do it. And, and coming together on things like that just makes a lot of sense. And that's where I really think the healthcare coalitions can really show, a, a, aside from the big stuff, right? We're all ready for, uh, um, you know, pandemic now, although pandemic four years ago wouldn't have been anything we'd have all sat around and talked about. Uh, we, we did very briefly, but not. We're ready for incidents now. But we're also ready to just to do everyday things that unfortunately are becoming everyday things. I mean, uh, Rob, you live in Vegas, and this week you had the shooting in Las Vegas. And I talked to to fellow uh, NAMT board member and my good friend Troy Took down there who said, you know, yeah, it's terrible that it happened, but thank God we've been practicing it. You know, I think those are that that's the kind of stuff that a healthcare coalition can do. It can force you to have those conversations, those uncomfortable conversations, high acuity, low frequency incidents. You can have all of that worked out long before you get to the get to go time. Well, do you know what? Uh, that like every good EMS and fire person, as soon as I realised there was a major incident in my area, and UNLV, by the way, is a mile from where I live, I immediately put the scanner on, and actually I listened to the slick, professional, cool, calm, and collected and coordinated uh, responders to that incident. And obviously, they made it. They can't change the outcome, but actually, listening to the professionalism and the professionals involved in that. Uh, was outstanding, and so I, I'd like to offer my uh, my praise and kudos for a job well done for everybody there. And obviously, I think one you mentioned that the drills. Obviously, we had Mandalay Bay here, and listening to the fact that uh, what happened back in the Mandalay Bay issue was that, of course, not there was more than one incident. There was the incident as it occurred, then then of course the incident transferred to the hospital because you had uh, people just being transported in there. And uh, listening to the scanner straight away, they were on top of that, and actually there were command levels occurring at Sunrise Hospital, which literally is out of my back fence here. Um, and so it was a, a job well done. Obviously, there is training, there is familiarity, and there is coordination. And that all came because of, you know, healthcare coalition and obviously working in an all-hazard environment as well. Also, you never know where these things lead. I have to go back a, a few years or two years ago. Ambulances for Ukraine, uh, Richmond Ambulance Authority put up an ambulance to go to Ukraine. The healthcare coalition then came along and filled that ambulance full of medical supplies. 
And obviously that only came because of the relationships that they have there. So anything's possible when you are in that network, when you have, as you say, when they've got your number and you have their number and you know where to call. And I think that's generally the point of this discussion is you've got to know who these people are and get out there, mix with them, then liaise with them, then train with them, and then work well with them. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Uh, it's almost time again. And so before we go, let's just uh, have some final thoughts. And uh, Brian, you've been listening to the last few minutes of the conversation. What are your final thoughts for everybody, for us and for everybody else? Well, just going along with the last couple of minutes of conversation, you know, the, the healthcare coalitions have healthcare preparedness program funds available to all the members of that healthcare coalition. And EMS right now is in a state where we have a staffing crisis throughout the country where we're fighting to have the appropriate level of staff to make sure our ambulances can respond on the street. And if we have funding available through the healthcare coalition that can handle some of those capital expenditures or supply expenditures, maybe that frees up financial assets to help with that staffing. So this is another avenue where not only are we building relationships with our community partners in order to make sure that we're delivering efficient and appropriate care and services to our community, but we're also making sure that our dollars spent are in the appropriate way that we can maintain that service going forward. Great. And uh, before I come to you, Chris, I need to let everybody know that uh, episode one of 2024 is going to be uh, NAEMT President Susan Bailey, and she's very kindly going to come on and talk about uh, the association's tra trajectory into the future, obviously her second year of presidency. But what that means for you, Chris, of course, is you're now on the countdown as president-elect. Uh, so uh, give us your thoughts, and obviously uh, you're a year before uh, you're on deck for real. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity to be involved today, and I appreciate being on with Brian. He, he's a wealth of knowledge on this subject and, and does a great job, so uh, it was it was enjoyable to be included today. Um, you're absolutely right, Rob. It is uh, 365 days-ish now until, uh, until I uh, get the privilege of serving as the president. I think uh, one of my big goals is uh, we're a membership organization. You know, we're a professional organization that represents our members. And one of my biggest goals is to get back to the members and, and ask what uh, we're doing some incredible things, but I think we have to remember that we're a membership organization first and we need to take care of our members. And so you'll see a lot of that uh, from me over the course of the next year, even as I get ready. Um, Susan and I have had a great conversation about that. In fact, got some exciting things coming up to work with some state associations and, and things that are going to help us advance our EMS profession. Um, so, you know, definitely uh, supporting Susan, you're, you're absolutely right. We have exciting changes at NAMT, and uh, I'm looking forward to see what 2024 brings. But in the meantime, uh, I wish everybody a Merry Christmas, uh, Happy Hanukkah, or whatever celebration uh, you participate in as we close out 2024. And it was certainly the happiest of New Year's and look forward to seeing everybody again next year. Well, Chris... And Brian, thank you very much indeed. And from me, I'd like to wish everybody a very happy holiday. It's been a great ride in the last 12 months to uh, start off NAMT Radio with some amazing guests. And if you just go back through the back catalogue, uh, again, on the platform that you listen or take your podcast from, you can see the range of guests 
the amazing range of topics and subjects that we've had. And uh, they're all as good now as they were when we recorded them. So go back and listen in if you want to hear anything about uh, life in NAEMT. You can catch it all at NAEMT Radio. So uh, on behalf of my guests, uh, Chris Way and Brian Stennett, I've been Rob Lawrence. Happy holidays, and we'll see you in 2024. Bye for now.